Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. You may have heard terms like cognitive behavioral therapy or psychoanalysis that describe different schools of thought or orientations for therapy. At last count, there were a few hundred validated orientations to psychotherapy, which may cause you to ask, with so many to choose from, which is the best for me? For most of us who are considering entering therapy, the therapist's orientation tends to be far less predictive of successful therapy than the quality of the match of the two people in the room. When I was attending a talk from Dr. Dan Siegel, a psychiatrist who is a major thought leader on therapy, he said that a way a client can know if it's a good match is when the client, quote, feels felt by the therapist. In other words, the client feels safe and deeply understood. That being said, there are many ways for a therapist to reach a client, and I thought it would be cool for you to get to hear a conversation between two psychologists who love the craft and who love geeking out to it, so you'd have a behind-the-scenes look at how two active therapists think about therapy. In addition to therapeutic orientation, having multiple tools to connect with clients can assist the therapist in the therapeutic process. These tools obviously include empathy and attunement, but they can also include the scope of knowledge to create good metaphors, improv skills, and being able to land salient stories that can direct a person to their truth. So with great enthusiasm, I bring you the thoughtful and creative Dr. Michael Alsay. He is a psychologist in private practice in Terrytown, New York, and the author of a book I loved called Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. He's also a pianist, a mental health educator at the Manhattan School of Music, and a lover of the arts, which informs his therapy. Super psyched guest, Lori Gottlieb reviewed his book and said that Mike succeeded in showing how creativity can be taught and quote, illuminating the artistry that inspires the work we do as therapists. So listen in as Mike and I talk about the factors that account for good therapy. Dr. Michael Alsay, who's asked me to call him Mike, welcome to Super Psyched. I'm excited to be here, Adam. Oh, I just took to you and your writing and your TED Talk, and you are a brother on the other coast. I couldn't believe the sources from which you take your psychotherapy. And that's part of the reason that we're talking today. It's kind of almost anything in life, art, music, life in and of itself can be used in the psychotherapy room. And that's how I see it too, that everything is possible grist for the mill. And when I heard you taking from places like Coltrane and Dead Poet Society and anything involving Robin Williams and improv itself, I thought I have to have you here to talk about psychotherapy and maybe to also just for the listener who has a friend or maybe themselves might be on the fence about engaging in psychotherapy, the benefits that can come about from just 
giving it a shot. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to help the listener through that process a little bit. But let's talk a little bit about what caused you to write this great book on improv and therapy itself. Yeah, it's so funny because I think part of it is because I work at Manhattan School of Music and I work with all these musicians and artists and thinking about the link between how reading the psyche is a lot like reading the chord changes as a jazz musician. That was really a motivating factor. But then the more that I think about it, I think therapy itself is like an art. But I also think living in a psychologically integrated way is a creative act. It's an artful process. And the more we get engaged in it, like I remember listening to Lori Gottlieb on your show and she talked about how you edit. You not only edit as a writer, you revise and you fall in love with the process of revising and finding new ways of working out new forms. And I really would love the public to see, wow, therapy is that. And also want therapists to kind of take a little bit more credit. We are totally scientists in deciphering all these interesting things. But really, like at the end of the day, when we're working with clients, we're making art together. We're conducting sessions. We're like conductors, but we're also listening with such a tuned ear. And then, of course, we're a lot like actors, too, because we're like, wait, let me get into the skin and the motivation of the person sitting before me and let me pull from my own. So we bring everything to the table. Couldn't agree more. And I love that Steve Jobs, for example, at Apple has these two streets that meet very intentionally that are technology and liberal arts. And one of the things I appreciate about you is that the science comes first and then the art, it seems, is a sequence that a solid foundation in psychotherapy, psychology itself. And I think about Miles Davis, how he got, he mastered the basics. He could play his horn like nobody's business. And same with Picasso, he could draw a human hand. And both of them found their true voice as artists, but as true technicians first, and then artists. It seems like that is the sequence. I think, you know, it's so funny. And I think it goes both ways. I love the Picasso reference because I was thinking about him too. Because you look at Picasso could do anything in any style. He could do representation, he could do abstract, he could do all sorts of different kinds of figures, everything, because he knew the technique was so important. But when you can merge these things, so I think all of the greatest artists are scientists and mm -hmm. all of the greatest scientists are artists. And if you think about it, the best musicians, the best actors, they have such technical expertise and the capacity to express it poetically. And when you're in that zone, you're transcending both. And to me, that is what where the most beautiful therapy happens. That's most where the most beautiful creative living happens. And it's also interestingly enough how we're built. We're built as I've said, as a square peg in a round hole, the Vitruvian man of da Vinci. We are the circle of emotion and this nonlinear stuff and this very focused, logical, discriminating stuff. And when we bring them together, oh man, does it sing. I couldn't agree more. And how does the convergence of those existential qualities help the client who wants to come in to get therapy? What does providing the merging of those two worlds give? I always think about this funny joke. You know, you've had that friend out there who said, I went to this fantastic therapist. They were so good. They were so tuned in. They listened to me. I felt so understood. 
but I never really got from them what I should do with all the stuff that I told them. And so then I went to this other therapist and this other therapist was amazing. They told me exactly what to do and how to do it. But sometimes it didn't feel like they were listening at all to certain stretches of my experience. The best therapists listen deeply, non-judgmentally, but also can zero right in just like a good band leader to give you a sound check and to help you create some new form. And in fact, you see that when you're like watching jazz. The best jazz musicians are listening and figuring out how to accompany, but then they're echoing something that the soloist is doing to spur them on to go even further. It becomes this dialogue, but like you're saying is like, we're not used to having people who are so integrated to bring them together and toggle back and forth. And you know, that's why I'm so grateful to the people who, Shore, Siegel, who've created in proponents of this term, interpersonal neurobiology, these mind melds, these collaborations, the collision of kind of two chemicals in the room, making something a little better. And I've often thought about even the concept, this is a little getting a little esoteric here, but of a higher power and a higher power could just be the connection of two people is greater than me is me meeting with somebody else. That's bigger than me alone. And I love this. You're not. Yeah. It's so amazing because you know, the funny thing about creativity is it always happens in the third. It's the joining of two things that mystically create the third, whether it's a chord or whether it's something where you have different polarities that bring something new. And that is the transcendent thing, which is, like you said, this higher power thing. Because how can you have these seemingly antagonistic, complementary things somehow create something interesting together and be themselves and yet be something else? That's like sort of mystical. But that's what we feel when we're in deep connection with another human being in conversation and when we're simultaneously feeling connected to ourselves. In fact, you know, from reading my book, you know, I talk about the fact that we start out as polyphonic creatures with all these different voices. And then we learn how to go into one voice monophonically. But we don't have to resolve the contradiction. We are many and we are one all Mm. the time. And we're always in relationship, even imaginally, even when we're alone, we're still in relationship. I heard a great quote recently, I believe from an English thinker who said something along the lines of, I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. And we somehow shed these beautiful polyphonic qualities for the sake of kind of social comparison or conformity, because our brains are so tuned in to conform over time. And we lose that essence. And I think that's one of the gifts of therapy is reclaiming that truth by just kind of separating all the wires that got tangled over the years. I agree. And I was thinking of what you said about Dan Siegel and Alan Shore and how they brought together these really interesting discrepant fields. But you know, if you look at the history of psychotherapy, it's often toggled back and forth between, okay, we're going to be directive and really tell you, like interpret, and then we're going to lay back and we're going to be like more humanistic and receptive. Oh, we're going to do CBT and we're going to be very directive. Oh, we're now we're going to pull it back. And so even the field itself wrestles with going back between these polarities. And I'm like, wait a minute, why don't we just recognize these are both important. You want your therapist to be listening deeply and laying back, and then you want them to be zooming in and zeroing in closer. And that's the wonderful interplay of creativity operates on being receptive, 
and then taking up space, contracting, taking up space. It's the way the universe was created, right? With an expansion and a contraction. With an expansion and a contraction. So true. And there are some schools of thought that really are proponents of the idea that we are just one thing in the room. And clearly you are not that. You're saying that we need to shape shift a bit to be with the clients as they show at that moment is what I'm... Meet them there. Yeah. And you know what the thing is? I think what's interesting is even as I've grown as a clinician, I started thinking I needed to be totally receptive and not intrude on the space too much, you know, and like support and encourage and be like, be this muse all the time and this benevolent witness, which is fantastic. But then there's some times where you want to also get in there and make a sharp, almost subversive tricksterish kind of like distillation of something. But you do it playfully to say, hey, I want to see if we can make a new line out of this and an interesting line out of this together. And so it doesn't come across as competitive or getting in the way. It's like, basically, I think creatively, we're all looking to collaborate. Great artists, they always look to do a mashup and a collaboration because they're like, I know what I can bring to the table. I know what you can bring to the table. And I'm curious about what we can bring to the table. And I think that's where therapy really is cooking. And I remember once I had a client who left a session and he said, Mike, God, if I'd known therapy was going to be this fun and this productive, I would have done it years ago. Totally. And I hear that so often from my clients is like, this is not only not bad, this is actually something I look forward to. Is that normal? And I say, is that weird? (laughs) No, it's fantastic. And the other thing is the funny thing. And part of this also is like the, I think therefore I am kind of Descartes kind of thing that we tend to privilege logic at times over emotion and play happens as Donald Winnicott, the great British Mm. psychoanalyst said in the zone where imagination and reality intermingle and coexist. And it's both. And you're always going back and forth between bringing in reality and the linear reality and the nonlinear imagination. And that's actually a sign of actually growth and health and maturity. Whereas, like you said, sometimes we split off from sides because we think, oh, I should grow out of that. Or I can't reconcile those. Those don't fit. But it takes away some of our richness. So true. And I'm thinking about even just that proposition that you just said from the Winnicott quote, you can extrapolate the basics of improv itself, the yes and principle. It's not a no but. And you're saying that Indirectly, you're also kind of speaking to a real truth in therapy, regardless of school of thought, that a sign of mental health is cognitive flexibility. A sign of not doing well is that rigidity or the chaos. I love the idea of the river running through the banks of chaos and rigidity and that mental health is somewhere between those two polarities. And you're speaking to that idea through the yes and kind of stretching our mindsets to accommodate the whole rather than necessarily trying to dissociate from something. And Adam, we talked about this before. For I want to share this with the audience and yeah. what we said about Robin Williams. Because I think Robin Williams is a brilliant example of it because such an amazingly brilliant, spontaneous, improvisational mind and heart, but also what wins him the Academy? Him showing the vulnerability of... I think it was Sean McGuire was his character that he was, right? Like, I don't remember the name, but it was such was a good name. character. I think his name was Sean. And him showing that to be able to trust in that improvisation means you're allowing yourself to be imperfectly vulnerable. And that is your strength. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Robin Williams' characters throughout the years, 
he could do that with a character who had such depth and dimension, whether it was, you know, a Mrs. Doubtfire, who could be both comic and also really poignant, or even like some brilliant roles, like he was in The Fisher King, where he was like this interesting guy who sort of had these visions. But you see the kind of capacity to have such range and complexity when we can trust and surrender to the moment improvisationally. The beauty of creativity is always discovering something and being appreciative of the superb surprise. Like Emily Dickinson says, not something that's shocking, but superb surprise and the truth, she says, shall dazzle gradually. The truth shall dazzle gradually. Yeah. That is quite an image. Yeah. And to capture that, to hold the brightness and beauty of it and to allow it to dazzle gradually. That is the balancing act of a wonderful therapist to hold the truth, but to make sure it dazzles gradually. I love that idea. And it's not just like a quick burn. It's a nice long one. And I can imagine that would have a longer half-life in our systems. You're also speaking to the idea of collaboration. And one of the things I often tell people when I'm speaking to them for the very first time on the phone, seeing if we might be a match on all of the fronts, is that the biggest predictor of therapy success is the quality of the match between the two people in the room. There are about 600 known modalities of psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, <laughs> psychoanalytic. Crazy. That's so crazy. And they're, yeah. and they're all good. And I really believe in personally having a large toolkit and access to all of those tools, as many of those tools as fit me. But I've also come to realize that they're all good and that people may benefit from them at different phases. They may yeah. need cognitive behavioral therapy for this thing. And they might want to go to kind of a classical practitioner of that. They might want to be with somebody who's more like us at some point, who's more universal. And then they might actually want somebody who is more psychoanalytic in certain times of their lives or given their personality types. But the most important thing is, how well do we collab? And are we going to be like you two, which you and I were talking about offline? Will we be like the Edge and Bono together? Will it sound like Eddie Van Halen and Bono, which might not sound quite as good. <laughs> but if you are the Eddie Van Halen, maybe you find your David Lee Ross somewhere. Because the quality of the music between the two people in the room seems to be, to my ears, one of the biggest predictors of how well therapy is going to work. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I always think when I have a client come in, I'm thinking about, ooh, I wonder what I'm working with here. Like, I want to see what genres they like, emotionally speaking and intellectually. What's their sort of style? What's their sort of idiom? And how can I find a way to kind of connect with that? But also, and how can I expand them? Right. That's the interesting thing too, because like, it's sort of like on like the show, like The Voice, where you're like teaching young singers how to find their voice. You want the person who thinks their only lane is R&B. You want them to try country or try something totally edgy to try out different aspects of them. But you also want them to figure out how to stay within the lane that really is them. But you're constantly trying to see. And that's why it's so interesting when you see some of these eventual stars on the show. I'm going to work with Blake Shelton or Alicia Keys because I think she's going to, even though she's really different, she's going to tap into something. And what's really cool about these artists is that you see that somebody who is in touch and integrated as a creative artist, whether we're a therapist or an actual singer or something like that, is much more interested in that compatibility responsiveness thing and can adapt, mm. which is really, really fun. And you're right. It's interesting to see. It's all about the match. So that's what I mean is like when you're a really sharply tuned listener and also trying to figure out what I'm working with, 
all of a sudden it's like, I think therapy is about figuring out how can we have a lot of fun and do a lot of good work at the same time. And we're called shrinks. And yet one of the things that we do is we stretch people and help them find their true voice. So if they come in preloaded for R&B and they decide to work with Blake Shelton and see what country has to teach them. And I'm thinking about myself. I'm an American male, rather tall and on the hairy side. And I lived in Japan with my size 13 shoes, which were always funny to take off in the Genkan before you'd enter someone's house. And I learned the language. And do I live in Japan now? Do I do a whole bunch of Japanese things these days? Not as much, but it informs me. It stretched me. It gave me access to an entirely different voice. And I love the idea of therapist being kind of the tour guide saying, hey, let's stop here and try this out and see if we might be able to stretch into this. And that exactly. we're more, so, yeah. And that's where I think it's really interesting too, like what you're saying too, is that I think our job is to shrink and to expand and also to help people lean into places that might feel somewhat at first dissonant or new, but to approach that with excitement and gusto and enthusiasm. Because, you know, I read this in the book, the word enthusiasm is a lovely word that we don't give enough credit to. It means to be possessed by the gods. And enthusiasm, it's wonderful to be as enthusiastic about what we don't know yet. And again, I think a lot of people, including myself, get challenged by, oh, I feel like I should know already, or I feel like that's uncertain. But the more you become an artist, actually, John Keats, the great romantic poet, called it the capacity of negative capability. And negative capability is the idea that you can be with complexity, mystery, nuance, without striving too much for reason or logic. That doesn't mean that you're just like, oh, I'm willy-nilly. It means like you're open to trying out new things where you don't know all of the answers yet. So you sort of fall in love with the process and the aesthetics of what is there no matter what. And surprisingly, by trusting that experience, like a good improvisational actor or comedian, you actually then go into the territory of really getting to know it very sharply. So what's great about therapy as in creative life, it always works on the paradox. When you are lost, you are found. When you think you are found, you are lost. When you feel like you are sharp, you are vague. When you are vague, you find clarity. So somebody might hear that and say, wait, hang on a second. That makes no sense. I mean, like, okay, Yoda, are you basically, yeah, this is too esoteric. No, if you were to bring those ideas of these contradictions, these spaces of profound complexities and tolerating these types of ambiguities, what does that actually mean? So therapists out there, clients out there, I want you to think about this. How many times have you either said as a client or heard as a therapist? I know this is going to sound really crazy, but Or Mm -hmm. I don't know why this is coming to mind. This is weird, but those are usually the best moments. But notice how we always try to say, I'm really foolish for about to say this. I'm really, I don't know why. And then of course, there's going to be great wisdom in that. And then, you know, the opposite when somebody comes in is like, I think I figured out exactly why this is. (laughs) And then I think I know. And then by the end of the session, we're also saying, you know what? So there's a great poem by Stephen Dunn, and it's called The Reverse Side. And he says something to the effect of, 
you know, essentially there's a Japanese proverb, the reverse side also has a reverse side. <laughs> and he talks about when we speak a truth, some of us instantly feel foolish as if a deck inside of us has been shuffled. And there it is the opposite of what we said. And perhaps why, as we fall in love, we're already falling out of it. It's why the terrified and the simple latch onto one story, just one great version of the mystery. How do we not go crazy? We have found ourselves compelled to live with the circle, the ellipsis, the word not yet written. So there's something really interesting about being able to trust that we're going to find something, but also know that we're going to temporarily feel off course. That may be one of the greatest gifts of therapy. One of those is that no feeling lasts forever. When we're in it, it feels like this is permanent. And lo and behold, it dissipates no matter what, whether it's a great feeling or a not so great feeling. And you're also speaking to the idea of just recognizing the complexity, the vastness of life and not shrinking into these tight spaces and saying, this defines me and I will not be bigger than that. This idea of constantly being open to learning more. And the best part is that what we need, we all of us need is to be companions so that we don't feel that we're alone when we hit these mysteries, when we feel like we're in the middle, I talk to my music students, you know, these classical students that I'm working with, and I say, some of the stuff in life is sort of like the development section of a sonata. And in the development section, it's not really clear in the beginning, in the introduction of a sonata, you get like, you know what the main theme is, but the development section, it compresses the theme, it changes keys, it moves in all sorts of ways. It feels really jumbled. And so it's really important to also feel like we're with a guide who's not scared of going into that territory. Like even Dante didn't go into hell alone. He went with Virgil as a guide. And I think as therapists, we go into your personal hell with you because we've been there ourselves and we know the landscape. But mm-hmm. we also, well, hopefully, if we're lucky, we've also been to see heaven and see what, how beautiful things can be. And I think creativity, I said this to somebody the other day and they liked it. I think creativity is hovering between heaven and earth. We are able to sense something above us that's bigger, but we're close enough to the ground to be somewhat still down to earth. And in those moments, we can hover. And that's the place where it's not just either or, it's somebody this and somebody that. Tolerating the and. And that's kind of brings us back to improv and how it's a perfect match. Paired with enthusiasm, I'm thinking about enthusiasm as also kind of being the breath of life. And my nickname, in high school was Enthusiatum, which I, <laughs> I really loved. And even just the name of this podcast, Super Sight, is kind of an outshoot of that idea. It's my hope existentially that the dash that is represented between our birth and death dates is infused with enthusiasm, that we're all yeah. finding our geek, that we're all finding something to take delight in. And I can already tell that the people who see you really get that as a benefit of being able to say, hey, this sounds really stupid, but... And as you say that this sounds very stupid, but you think about all of the children's stories and who's the wisest, it's always the court jester. The court jester has the answer and he's ostensibly the fool, but he's the wise one. Yeah. And you brought up a really good point too with breath, because you're right in the Hebrew, I think it comes from like ruach. It's where we get respiration and spirit comes from breath. And I think one of the things that's really interesting that's been important in Western psychology, especially, is that we've gotten very mind-oriented and we've forgotten to stay with the embodied. See, the breath is somewhere between the body and something else. 
And that's what makes it fantastic. And the funny thing is like when you drop into the breath, you sort of notice your embodiment, but you also notice your power because the voice comes through the breath. All of this logic, all of these words that make us brilliant come through the breath. To me, it's the most integrative thing to make sure we're making room for that breath and not forgetting our breath. I love that idea. And I am somebody who can forget to breathe. We all. That's why, that's why, <laughs> as John Kevin Sidden says, that's why it's good that it's involuntary. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. <laughs> Thank you, autonomic nervous system, for yeah, exactly. pulling up for me. <laughs> but yeah, and sometimes just by taking a breath, and I'm thinking about frustration tolerance as being kind of the central main street that kind of goes through what you were describing, those series of phenomena, and being able to tolerate frustration, being able to grow into it, recognizing that failure is just a part of the cost of doing something great and continuing and venturing forward, much in the way that we learned how to walk. And I think that therapy provides that kind of beautiful scaffolding for people to hold on to something as they're trying on something new, something a little bit wild, and see if it fits. Is that consistent with your experience. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny as you talk about it too, I realized something that we haven't stated explicitly, but that's worth sharing that we both believe in, I know, which is that curiosity and wonder are f- with us from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's part of this child's mind connection. And we are socialized out of it, all of us very easily. We stop asking why questions. We stop asking peripheral questions. We don't trust our instincts. We don't trust these special things. And then, of course, part of it is in services of developing these great skills as an adult, which I call the expert's mind. Being able to be discerning and discriminating is a very good thing. But it's when we join the adult's mind, the expert's mind with the child's mind and the child's wisdom, that's when we create the third. And that third is where creative people are at. And when you say third, you're not speaking about an external third and you're talking about internalized concept of self. Like I'm both a wise and expert adult and yet I've retained some of those qualities that we may have actually pruned away in the purpose of, quote, growing up. For two Jewish guys, this is going to be a little sacrilegious, but it's the Holy Trinity to have the combination of the child self, the adult self, and this thing that brings them together. I could not agree more. And that is the mystical third. And I think that's what all religions and spiritual traditions and meditation and mindfulness, yoga, everything are trying to make sure that, because yoga is right binding together or yoking together in a way. It's trying to bring together body and mind through this thing, the third, through the breath, essentially, that comes and forms some integration that is beyond us and then connects us all so good and to not be living these kind of monotone lives and appreciating the colors that we appreciate not being inauthentic and saying i am something that i'm not but being willing in this lifetime to retain the beauties of our yesteryear and maybe reclaiming those i'm wondering has there been an occasion where somebody came in and said i have adulted perfectly and in so doing i have become a eunuch i've lost everything and have you been able to help them refine that sparkle. Yeah, because it's funny because sometimes what happens with a person like that is they're outwardly successful, but inwardly they feel disconnected from the source. 
So like, I remember once I saw like an investment guy who was really, really good at his job and he was really smart and he was really talented, but he also felt like when he got on that train and went into the city, he had to stop by stop, give away pieces of his heart and pieces of his soul to be able to make that exchange. And one of the things that we really worked on was being able to say, no, 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 actually, you can do that and connect to the creativity and the soulfulness. Obviously, because I know the New York City culture, I said, you don't also have to buy in to that as the center of this. And it's true. It's like The Little Prince, my one of my favorite mm. stories. What I love about The Little Prince is here's a guy who starts out being an artist and everybody looks at his art and says, what is this? That's and a he's hat. Like, it's a hat. It doesn't scare me at all, even though it's a boa constrictor swallowing an elephant. <laughs> and from that point, he says, ah, oh, grownups, it's so tiresome having to explain things to them. And that boy becomes a pilot instead of following some of his other inner dreams. And in the story, the beginning real sequence is that he basically loses fuel in his plane and is lost in the desert. And that is, a, I think, a metaphor for the person who loses connection to this childlike wonder. You know, you just provided a tool to the listener. I think that The Little Prince is one of those books that should be read ideally every year, but at least once a decade, just yeah. so that we remember these important messages. I mean, Antoine... Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, yeah. Oh, there we go. I love <laughs> him so much. And various incarnations of that book, including recently Netflix created its own kind of updated version. And it's just a perfect piece of a man who lived far too short of a life. But what a legacy. I mean, my children love it. I love it. It's just phenomenal. What are you working on? Because clearly you're not just a proponent of these ideas. You live them. So let's hear behind the scenes. What yeah. are you stretching? So yeah, I mean, you know, it's so funny because I'm stretching working on improv in my life. I have a five-year-old son and so the five-year-olds are the best improvisers in the world. And so it's sort of like, I don't know if I'm teaching him or he's teaching me to get better at it. But the other thing for me, as you could tell, since I love words and I process a lot, my growing place is sometimes learning to keep it inside and to trust sometimes people who don't necessarily work with like that and see the beauty of it, even though it's different from how I work. And so it's just really interesting because your growing area can always be different. And so it's just really fascinating to try out what that's like. 100%. And I think about myself, historically, I was a exclusively a dog person. And wow. when I accommodated for cats over time, the things I learned about my cat parts and what cats taught me in terms of cultivating kind of an inner purr, being more comfortable, being alone, just the different types of music that have taught me different things. I remember, <laughs> I really do believe that everything can be a teacher, whether you're gardening or listening to your child. My children have taught me, my goodness, so much that everything is possibly a teacher if we allow it to be. And it sounds like improv has really been important for you. Your son has been a really big deal. I really vibe with that. And I think that it helps us every day, maybe just grow a little. And I think, you know, one of the things that you know, I talked about with you earlier is that I'm an introverted extrovert. You would think I'm a classic extrovert because I'm very gregarious. But I'm also very interested in the internal world. I'm a big reader of poetry and fiction, and, and I need my time to unwind. 
And so what I do is I literally make my day toggling back and forth between the extroverted and introverted worlds. So I love this and I love sessions because they're the blend of the introverted and the extroverted. But then after this, I'll go for a walk and allow my mind to wander. And I like taking photos and writing and I play piano. So I really have made it much more intentional about blending those worlds and making room for them because I think the culture doesn't always learn how to bring them in and as if, oh, I got to schedule that around. But to me, it's like, it's got to be integrated. Totally. And I'm thinking about you from the perspective of expansion and contraction as one who clearly enjoys the extroversion, enjoys the introversion, enjoys taking stuff in and enjoys savoring life. And I think that having that approach and having as many tools as possible to enjoy. I remember as a child, my mother very wisely said to me, Adam, the more activities that you learn how to do, the more you're going to enjoy life because you'll have more access to more experiences, more access to more people, more of life itself. Completely. And, you know, in terms of what I'm up to, because we were talking about it, I'm tinkering with a book idea about improvisational parenting that I'm working on with an improv comedian to talk about how really being an engaged parent and really also being engaged deeply with your child is learning and sharing the art of improvisation together. And then I have another little hobby horse. I've always been fascinated, probably because my mind is so far roving. And, you know, most of us who go to grad school in psychology have obsessional traits. So I wrote my dissertation on obsessive compulsive disorder, and I really am interested in looking at it from a different angle that people with obsessive compulsive tendencies, especially the disorder, have a very distinct sensitivity and empathy that when tapped into is really extraordinary. And I'm working on a book project that gets at how we can look at this from a totally different angle. And to me, that's just really fun. I always love looking at things from a new angle. To me, it's like amazing. Like that's what I love about Freud is that you see like one of his earlier clients, the rat man, who is like the quintessential obsessional case. The reason he wanted to see Freud was because he read his work and he's like, you think like I do, you obsess about everything. And creative artists obsess, but they productively obsess. If you were to describe the differences between productive and not such productive obsession, what would it sound like? So the interesting thing that obsession in like as someone with OCD, it's often a sort of way of both expressing something and also distancing somewhat from something else. Mm. And the more we can actually link them. So I'll give you an example. When COVID was raging the first few months, all of a sudden I got this wonderful obsession that I had in a cavity. And all of a sudden I needed to obsess. What if I can't go to the dentist and this intensifies and I'm in agony? And Kafka's metamorphosis, I turn into this terrible thing that is... Cockroach in the morning. Yeah. And I started to just totally obsess. What if then I go to the dentist and then I catch COVID and I bring it to my family and because of my own self. And then this obsession was really, really creative and imaginative. But you know what I said to myself, Adam? I stopped myself. I said, Mike, inside, I said, what else are you feeling that you're having a hard time staying with? And I said, oh, yeah. I think I'm a little terrified of this thing that we don't know yet. And it's scaring me to be locked down. And I feel a little sad watching my son play in the basement with me rather than going to school. And once I could be with those feelings and open them up, the obsession vanished. 
my creativity came back. And with the creativity, better obsessions, I'm guessing. Better obsessions. And I wrote a piece that showed up in the Chicago Tribune about what it was like being a pandemic parent and how we are sort of these funny warriors. And I just thought of all these funny scenarios that as parents of little ones went through, just trying to make it work. And I thought, okay, this is an obsession that I can work with. This is much more creative. And it's so important. What you were describing also was your capacity to name very complex phenomena that were circulating through your body. And as soon as you named it, you tamed it. I love the idea of name it to tame it. What we resist persists and gets worse over time. And the fact that you were able to name it and use your actual tools allowed you to be more present with your son and actually rock that opportunity that the two of you had, which was not the opportunity either of you wanted, but it was what you had. And I'm guessing that your COVID experience as a result was far more positive, as horrible as that is to say, because I know so much for so many people, it was so awful. Yeah. But you took what you had and you just doubled down and said, let's and keep you, moving. And you know what I think is interesting, both about OCD, but I think about also just in general, because I think this is also about creativity. So I'll use this analogy because I think it'll be good. We talk a lot about existentialism as therapists sometimes too. Because to be creative means to be aware of not only limitation, but that we have forms, but the very things that we, very people we love, we're going to lose. So how do we make meaning out of that? And so one of the things I think that people get scared of because of creativity is they get scared. Oh my gosh, if I'm in touch with life, I'll also be in touch with death. Yes. But when you can be in touch with both like I did in that moment, oh my gosh, I'm scared about impending death, but how can I be with life while I'm in touch with that? And that, I see it, I once was taught in a poetry class that what makes poetry so beautiful in that regard is that it both shows us the life force always trying to go to the next line, to continue the line, and to play with the fact that the line is ending, which is constantly facing death, but saying, wait, I can still get in more. And it can create interesting, what we call enjambment, when you have a line spilling over. And so to me, the balancing act of being creative is affirming life as we also respect and honor death. That's brilliant. And I'm thinking about two very different voices. My son's science teacher said that creativity really resides in the constraints. And I think that's true. Like if you say, write something, okay, write something, I'll write something. Write to me about the day in the life of an elephant from the elephant's perspective. When we get in that constraints, suddenly we can get far more creative. Thinking about that, I'm also thinking about, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, so I apologize to my Portuguese speakers, but Paulo Colo, the author of The Alchemist, in an interview I read, said that death is always riding in his car, sitting next to me. And I love her because she reminds me that today is precious. And I thought that was really important. So I want to ask you this as my final question then, Mike. If you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity one insight or skill that would dramatically improve the life of the individual and perhaps even society at large, what would that insight or skill be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as perhaps, since we're all connected, society at large? I think it's really important for us to look at the world and ourselves more poetically. Poetically, in that I mean, is that a poet is able to notice the ordinary and the extraordinary in the ordinary and to find the new turns always. 
And to have a poetic sensibility is to realize that, like you said, we deal with constraints and limits, but we also deal with what sings from the tension between that. There was an old quote by William Carlos Williams, and he said something to the effect of, men die every day from news, from the lack of actually being in touch with poetry. I butchered his quote, but he essentially is saying that we are so much with the world that we lose the poetic imagination that has so much more. And I think trusting in the wisdom of this, which is also trusting in that dreamlike side of ourselves to companion with the logic. I think sometimes we don't remember, we forget how to companion that dreamlike side. And we want to be wakefully dreaming. That's brilliant. And I'm just thinking about life in and of itself. And there's so many contradictions within life and tolerating those contradictions and being with the finite and taking care of the dishes and dealing with that stuff is important. And remembering, wow, I'm here today. I'm on this side of the grass. Let's go grab it. And let's grow this and learn that and celebrate this and be really selective about what we let into our psyches so that we can be at our best in the same way that we would only let in good food. Yeah, I'm just really just appreciating what you just said about the poetry. Yeah. And the poetry also remembers that as much as poetry is dynamic, it's music. So poetry is both music and language. It's architecture. So I think sometimes the other thing too is that I think we get static with things too easily. And I think one of the beauties of poetry, or even like Goethe said about music, that music is architecture in motion and architecture is music frozen. If we can see the perpetual link between what seems static and what seems dynamic, ah, that's where the creativity happens. I mean, you have such access to so much profundity. I'm just appreciating that we're just touching the tip of the iceberg with you, but I can really tell that somebody who works with you is a beneficiary of all that you bring and that all that you've cultivated. And I think that is the gift of therapy to borrow from a great title from one of our favorite guys or y'all. So I wanted to say thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your wisdom with my listeners. This has been a blast. Adam, this has been so much fun playing together. I hope you guys out there are playing along with us. Right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.